welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. I want to start out this episode by saying I hope all of my listeners are doing their best to stay safe and healthy during this time. I know the COVID-19 situation has made everyone's lives really difficult, and I want to make it clear I am thinking of all of you. I know my podcast isn't that much. It's less than an hour of content each week, but I do hope it brings some joy and some level of distraction to your all's week and makes this whole situation a little bit easier. I know it's not going to change anything. After all, I'm not a scientist. I know nothing about infectious diseases, but I do make this podcast to bring entertainment and joy to people through history, and I really do hope it's helping, particularly at this more than difficult moment. So, this particular week's episode is going to be the first in a series about the women who surrounded Louis XIV's life. I personally am not the biggest fan of Louis XIV. I can definitely appreciate him and his achievements and his very long life, but he sort of is the villain in my research for my thesis, so I have a personal antipathy for him. But doing the research on him in my thesis made me learn how many women intersected his life in really interesting ways. So I decided to look at them because, as we all know, women in history tend to be hideously overlooked. This first episode in this little series is going to be about his mother, Anne of Austria. If you have heard of Anne of Austria, it's probably because of the super historically accurate novel, The Three Musketeers, or various film adaptations of The Three Musketeers. Anne's study guide has probably the most incest to date, although who am I to judge what gets determined as historical incest? Debunking some classic literature, chocolate, and some affairs that almost certainly did not happen for once. Let's begin. Anne of Austria was born September 22, 1601 in Spain, despite what her name might lead you to believe. Her full name at birth was Doña Ana Maria Mauricia of Spain, but for the sake of convenience and historical convention, I'm just going to be referring to her as Anne slash Anne of Austria, even though she never actually set foot in Austria. Shocking, I know. Anne's parents were Philip III of Spain and Margaret of Austria. She was the oldest of their children and had seven younger siblings, but only four of her siblings would actually survive childhood, and only two of those siblings would go on to have children of their own, which would cause quite a bit of messiness down the line. Even though Anne was from Spain, she would be known to history as Anne of Austria because of familial associations with the Austrian Habsburgs. Growing up, Anne is raised to be extremely religious. She is going to be well known for her piety for the rest of her life. However, outside of the circle of religion, her education is going to be 
fairly limited. Once she gets engaged to the King of France, she will learn just enough French to get by and quite a lot of court etiquette because, hey, what else is a princess supposed to know? But she won't learn anything specifically about politics except what she learns from watching Spanish court dramas that are playing out around her throughout her childhood. Except, as it turns out, watching said Spanish court dramas gives a woman quite an education in politics. In 1611, Anne's mother dies during childbirth. The death of her mother is extremely hard on Anne because the two had been really close to each other by royal standards, which means they actually interacted. After Anne's mother dies, Philip III of Spain shocks pretty much everyone by refusing to get remarried. After all, he has multiple children, he has heirs and spares. Remember, in Spain at this time, women can inherit the crown, so he doesn't exactly have to worry about having more children. After the death of her mother, Anne is going to become a bit of an unofficial mother to her siblings because, hey, she's 10. That's definitely old enough to step into her mother's shoes. The same year that her mother dies, Anne gets engaged to Louis XIII, the King of France. As part of the engagement contract, however, Anne is going to have to give up her rights to the throne of Spain, unless she dies without children. But spoiler alert, as I hinted in the introduction, that isn't going to happen. Two years into the engagement, in 1613, Anne catches smallpox, which is majorly terrifying for everyone in Spain and France. However, Anne is fairly healthy, she recovers quickly, and doesn't even have any pox scars on her face. What a woman. On November 25th, 1615, when she's 14, after four years of being engaged, Anne finally marries Louis XIII of France in the city of Bordeaux. Technically, the two had gotten married by proxy early in, in October while Anne was still in Spain, which was common at the time, but their official face-to-face -face wedding ceremony happens in November 1615. According to sources, when Anne had to leave Spain, she had an extremely emotional goodbye with her father because the two had been so close and Anne and Philip would continue having a close relationship via letter, which would end up causing a little bit of trouble for Anne down the line. The day after Anne and Louis actually get married to each other, Louis's sister, Elizabeth, marries Anne's brother, Philip, and eventually Anne and Louis's son would marry Philip and Elizabeth's daughter because that's not at all weird and incesty. From the get-go, Anne does not have a great relationship with her husband. She was only 14 when she married Louis, who is less than a week younger than her, so it's a few years before they actually consummate the relationship even though the official story is that they consummate the relationship the same night as the wedding so that the marriage can be legally valid. Although, let's be real, they probably didn't because they're 14. 14-year-olds 14 
really don't know what they're doing. After the wedding, Anne is basically going to get ignored by Louis, which confuses everyone because Anne is known for being very pretty. She has dark hair, big green eyes, and by the standards of the time, an excellent figure. She's known for being a romantic and loving things like the arts and the theater. So everyone's like, why wouldn't Louis be all over her? She is, by all accounts, the ideal woman. Well, Louis XIII was a bit of an emotional mess. He had a really rough relationship with both of his parents, who both were, well, distant, especially when we compare it to Anne of Austria, who was very close to her parents, both by the standards of the 1600s and by the standards of today. Louis's mother and father thought that the best way to raise a king was basically to ignore him or be mean to him. On top of that, Louis XIII's sexuality is a bit up for debate. He did not have mistresses. In fact, he was a bit of a sexual prude, but he did have a lot of very intense relationships with male courtiers, so historians still wonder if he was possibly bisexual or maybe even gay. So, from the get-go, Anne is not necessarily getting along great with her husband. She also isn't getting along great with her mother-in-law, Mary de Medicis. And as we know from history, the husband, yes, that's important, but having a bad relationship with your mother-in-law is even worse. Basically, Marie refused to recognize Anne as the new queen of France, and in response, being a fairly defiant teenager, Anne refused to be French and basically just kept speaking Spanish fairly aggressively at everyone. She also kept up a love for Spanish customs, particularly Spanish chocolate. Not that I can blame her. Chocolate is delicious and she would per and she would love chocolate for the rest of her life. All of this made Louis XIII convinced that she would always put her loyalty to Spain before her loyalty to France, which is sort of fair because her father, Philip III, did explicitly tell her to stay in close contact with the Habsburg family and make sure that they are thought of whenever French foreign policy got crafted, and Anne was continuing to write a lot of letters to her father. In May 1617, a few years into the marriage, Louis XIII has a coup against his mother, Marie de Medicis, and exiles her to the French city of Blois. This allows Louis to actually be king in his own right. Technically, Louis had legally been of age since 1614 and had been ruling in his own right since then, but Marie really had had all of the power. After the coup, one of Louis's very close friends, the Duke de Luans, works to try to get Anne and Louis XIII closer together, tries to improve their marriage, but even after that little intervention, Anne still doesn't have all that much influence over her husband. The two most likely 
officially consummated their relationship in January 1619, according to the Royal Gazette, because yes, there was an official newspaper to tell all of France when the king and queen were having sex. So, it does look like by 1619, the couple was getting closer and maybe even liked each other a little bit, and in 1620, Anne gets pregnant, but then she miscarries. And in the 1620s, Anne is going to have a series of pregnancies, but all of them are going to end in miscarriages. These miscarriages are a problem for Anne. As the wife of a king, her main job is to provide him with an heir, aka a male son, and Anne just isn't doing that. Soon, rumors are swirling that she's maybe infertile, which would give the king good reason to annul the marriage, set her aside, get rid of her in some sort of devious way. On top of this, during the 1620s, Louis becomes convinced that Anne is wildly in love with his younger brother, Gaston, and is planning on murdering Louis and marrying Gaston in his place, which, yeah, very unlikely. Also, there's no proof that Anne had any interest in Gaston. Thank you very much. In 1621, Anne's father, Philip III, dies, which is completely devastating for Anne. One of the ways she copes with her father's death is to start buying up land in Paris and using this land to build a convent. Because remember, Anne is extremely religious. She ends up becoming friends with an abbess, Marguerite de Venille d'Arbraz, and makes her the abbess of this brand new convent. And Marguerite will be a close friend of Anne's for most of her life. And then her relationship with Louis gets even worse when Louis gets a new main advisor, the Cardinal de Richelieu, who ironically had actually started out his royal service in Anne's household. The Cardinal, the Cardinal de Richelieu had come from a decently good family that had struggled during the French Wars of Religion, but let's be real, who didn't struggle during the French Wars of Religion, was extremely ambitious and joined the church. The cardinal quickly worked his way up through the French church, and at the age of 22nd was, was consecrated as a bishop, even though he was technically too young to be a bishop. In 1610, King Henry IV was assassinated, and Richelieu quickly got involved in the Estates General and all sorts of regency drama that was going on during Louis XIII's minority. He then became friendly with Marie de Medicis and began gaining power at court. Then, in 1624, he got power for realsies by becoming Louis' chief minister, and once he was chief minister, he worked really hard to keep Anne out of any political influence because he thought, like so many other men in the 1600s, that women basically can't do things. In the Cardinal's case, it wasn't just misogyny pushing these ideas, but because Marita Medici's track record as regent hadn't necessarily been ideal. The next year, in 1625, Louis XIII's little sister, Henriette Marie, gets married to Charles I of England. Anne goes with Henriette 
to the French border to say goodbye to her. When Anne is there, she meets an English noble and one of Charles's best friends, George de Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham. Buckingham reveals that he's super attracted to Anne and tries to court her in a garden. Anne is having none of it. And the whole thing causes a huge scandal, and Buckingham ends up being banned from France. A lot of the drama over the Buckingham affair comes from the fact that Louis is suffering from a sickness at the time, so he isn't present during the various events. So it's just Anne and Buckingham alone, and Anne had the absolute audacity to be vaguely polite to a handsome man while her husband wasn't present. Geez, Anne, you are such a slut. Basically, the novel by Alexander Dumas, The Three Musketeers, is all about this. The plot of the first third, I'd say, is how Anne is having an affair with the Duke, lends him some diamonds, which are a gift from the king, and then the musketeers have to go get them back. Yeah, the actuality is that this almost certainly did not happen because Anne was good and pious and virtuous and was completely appalled at the idea that the Duke, one, would be attracted to her, and two, would ever act on those feelings. In fact, the Duke's conduct in 1625 really hurt the somewhat positive relationship between England and France. The only aspect of Anne's life that the novel does a decent job of portraying is how isolated at the French court Anne of Austria was. But enough of me ripping on The Three Musketeers, which I do genuinely enjoy as a book. In 1630, Anne and Louis's mother, her not-so-friendly frenemy, Marie de Medicis, try to oust Richelieu. They sort of take advantage of the fact that Louis was pretty sick at the time, once again, and try to push him from power because they're both annoyed at how Richelieu is trying to isolate them from court influence. And this is probably the only time that Anne and Marie did not utterly hate each other. However, this attempt to oust Richelieu fails, and it's bad news for Marie. After this, Marie leaves France for good. And generally, the 1630s aren't going to be great for Anne. The attempt to get rid of Richelieu fails, he maintains his power, if anything, he's going to get stronger, and then in 1635, France declares war against Spain. Anne was still close to her brother, the now king, Philippe IV of Spain, which puts Anne in an extremely awkward place since she is married to the king of France. In 1637, Anne got caught writing secret letters to Philip, and she's forced to issue a recantation and public apology about the whole thing by Richelieu, which causes major fears in Spain that Louis is going to repudiate Anne and somehow try to end the relationship with her. However, in 1638, all that is going to change. When Anne finally gives birth to a son, also named Louis, because the French kings are so creative in naming, after a shockingly healthy pregnancy. 
She's only in labor for about a day. The baby pops out. Mother and son are both healthy. And this is a huge deal because Louis XIII still didn't have an heir, even though he and Anne had been married for over 20 years. And Anne was getting pretty old for the time. She's almost 37 when Louis XIV is born. So everyone just assumed that she could not have a child. Anne, obviously, is thrilled about Louis's birth. At the time, she was convinced that Louis XIII was going to annul the marriage and go force her to live in the Spanish Netherlands in exile. She is so happy about her son's birth that she is going to nickname Louis XIV Don or God-given. However, as soon as Louis is born, rumors start swirling about his parentage because, as everyone knows, Anne's relationship with her husband is extremely not great Bob at that point. Some people whisper that Cardinal de Richelieu is Louis's father, which is a giant nope given Anne's feelings towards the man or that it was some sort of miraculous pregnancy, a la the Virgin Mary, which, from a biological standpoint, is an absolutely not. The reality of it is, Louis XIII was almost certainly Louis XIV's father. Louis and Anne had spent most of November and December of 1637 together, so she probably got pregnant, by December, January 1637, January 1638, which would make a September 1638 pregnancy completely normal. Sometimes husbands and wives have sex. I know it's shocking, but it happens. Five days after Louis XIV's birth and sister-in-law, her brother's wife, and her husband's sister, because remember by now, the French and Spanish royal families are incredibly interrelated, gives birth to a daughter, Marie Therese of Spain, which means that France and Spain both now have heirs, because unlike in France, women can inherit in Spain. Thank you very much. Two years after giving birth to Louis, Anne gives birth to a second son, Philippe, the future Duc de Orleans, and after having two sons, Anne is going to have a lot more sway in court because she's provided the king with an heir and a spare. She's done her job. There's no reason to hurt her anymore. As a baby, Anne's son is not going to see a lot of his father. Part of that is tradition. Kings aren't that involved with the raising of their children because they have a country to run. And part of that is because by this point in his life, Louis XIII is fairly sick. Anne, however, is going to spend a lot of time with both of her children, which was very shocking in France for upper-class women at the time, especially queens. Queens weren't supposed to bother themselves with mundane things, like caring about their infants. How bourgeoisie. She is going to be much closer to her sons than most queens would have been, and she's going to be really focused on teaching her children a variety of things, especially to love both 
baths and the theater, which will be a running theme in Louis XIV's life. A few years after giving birth to Louis XIV, Anne is going to see yet another upswing in her rise to influence in 1642 when Marie de Medicis and the Cardinal de Richelieu die. Suddenly, two people who traditionally had blocked Anne from power are out of the picture. It's Anne's time to shine. And oh boy, is she ever going to shine. Because on May 4th, 1643, Louis XIII, her not-so-beloved husband, dies, most likely of tuberculosis, at the age of 42. According to contemporary sources, Louis XIII was thrilled to die, which says a lot about his mental state, while Anne was more ambivalent about the whole situation. Apparently, she was somewhat sad. After all, she had been married to the man for over two decades at this point. But at the same time, she was thrilled to have her beloved son be the new king. She literally runs across the palace as soon as Louis XIII is dead to see the now Louis XIV and be the first person to greet him as king. At the time of Louis XIII's death, however, the now Louis XIV is only four years old, and he aggressively cannot rule alone and needs a regent. Right before he dies, Louis XIII says that there will be a regency council with his brother Gaston at its head, aka the one that Louis was convinced Anne was in love with during the 1620s. Anne is not happy by this turn of events. She was expecting that she would be the sole regent, and now suddenly there's a council of regents and she's not on it. So Anne quickly acts. She gets the Paris Parliament, a law court mostly made up of nobles that gets to decide various legal things to completely ignore Louis's will and name her as Louis XIV's sole regent, which means that she's essentially in charge of France because, let's be real, a four-year-old really isn't going to be making any major decisions. Now that she's the sole regent, the first thing she's going to do is move herself and her children from their traditional home of the Louvre Palace to Richelieu's old palace because revenge is sweet like that. However, Anne is not going to do all the work of ruling the country alone. Her main ally in her regency is going to be Giulio Mazarin, an Italian cardinal. Mazarin came from an Italian noble family and had worked for Pope Urban VIII before going to France. In fact, he had been suggested for his position by Richelieu before Richelieu's death. Mazarin was known for being extremely diplomatic and very handsome. Louis XIII apparently liked to tease Anne over Mazarin's physical similarities to the Duke of Buckingham. As a result of Mazarin's diplomatic skills and his charm, he and Anne got along very well. A little too well, perhaps. Rumors swirled throughout the French court that they were secretly married and having some sort of sexual relationship. Some people went as far as to claim that Mazarin, not Louis XIII, was the true father of Louis XIV. That seems pretty unlikely, given that both Anne and Mazarin were so pious. 
What's more likely, in my opinion, is that the two were just having a flirtation in the Middle Age chivalric tradition, where a man pays court on a woman that he knows he's never going to get physical with for the funsies of it. During the early years of Louis XIV's reign, Anne is mostly focused on raising her sons. She wants both of them, but especially Louis, to be properly educated, which in Louis's case means being able to read and write in four languages, French, Spanish, Italian, and Latin, two of which I can currently read in. I used to know Latin thanks to six years of taking it in middle and high school, but since then I have forgotten all of it. Sorry to my high school Latin teachers, I was truly a terrible student. Anne is also very focused on making sure that Louis knows all about history and religion so he can be an excellent king. She also is focused on Louis's physical health since his father had been so unhealthy. And as it turns out, Anne's focus worked because Louis XIV will live for an ungodly long time. However, as the 1640s continue, issues start to arise at the French court. We have that war with Spain that Anne was never a fan of, and as it turns out, it's getting really expensive because wars cost money. Who knew? As a result of the expense of the war, the government has to keep raising taxes, so it's getting less and less popular. At one point, the young Louis accompanied by his mother, go to make a speech at the Paris Parliament. During the speech, Anne gets openly criticized by the nobles, which really shakes her. This has never happened to a queen regent before. And then Anne also has to deal with the drama of England. Since we're in the mid-1640s, the English Civil War is in full swing. Henrietta Marie and Charles I's children come to France in exile to escape the drama of the Civil War, which makes sense since Henrietta Marie was Louis XIV's aunt after all. This does two things. One, it shows Anne that a king could be overthrown, and it's very expensive for the royal household. Not only does Anne have to host her sister-in-law, and all of her sister-in-law's children, but Henrietta Marie kept asking Anne for funds to help out her husband, funds that Anne didn't necessarily have. And by the mid-1640s, things start heating up for Anne in a not-so-fun way. French nobles wanted more share of the power in France, but Anne wanted Louis to have absolute power the way his father did. In 1648, representatives from the various parliaments came to Paris to reform various aspects of the French administration. This was extremely controversial and technically illegal on the parliament's end, so Anne decided to arrest three members of the parliament who were much more on the extreme end of things, even though Mazarin warned her against this. And as it turned out, Mazarin was right. The arrest of these three parliament members led to rioting and revolts by the, by the nobility and the Parisian mob against Mazarin and the royal family in an event that was known as the Fronde. As a result of the Fronde, 
Anne and the children are forced to hide out first in the Palais Royal and then to flee from Paris. For a while, things get so bad that it looks like the Parliament might try to capture and hold Louis XIV as a hostage. In 1651, Anne is forced to dismiss Mazarin as an official advisor, an attempt to cool things off, and then Mazarin has to leave France entirely for Germany. However, Mazarin and Anne eventually were able to play the nobles and other rebellious factions off of each other, and by the end of 1652, the beginning of 1653, Mazarin was physically back in Paris and able to help Anne ease the tensions. In 1651, Anne and Mazarin announced that Louis XIV is officially of age, even though he was only 13 at the time, which meant that Anne technically was no longer the regent, which also helped to soothe some of the tensions going on in France from the Fronde, although the Fronde technically would not come to an end point until 1653. In June 1654, Louis XIV is officially made the King of France in a giant, massive, elaborate, over-the-top, extremely expensive ceremony. Now that Louis is officially King of France, Anne once again is going to lose quite a bit of her political influence over a lot of things because now Louis is doing stuff on his own, and that's going to include doing stuff with women. In the mid-1650s, Louis falls in love with Marie Mancini, Mazarin's niece. Anne and Mazarin aggressively did not approve of the relationship. Thank you very much. Things get so heated about this relationship that Anne and Louis publicly get into an argument at a formal ball over who Louis should fight with. One of Marie Mancini's sisters or his royal cousin, who has the highest status, Henrietta Anne, who would later be the wife of his younger brother. Eventually, Anne wins out, but tensions between the mother and son will keep growing. In June 1658, Louis gets typhoid fever and almost dies. This makes everyone in France extremely antsy. After all, Louis isn't married, he doesn't have any children, he's only been serving as king for four years. Yes, there is a clear heir if he dies, his little brother Philippe, but if he dies and Philippe becomes king, and might become regent again, and no one exactly wants that. Luckily for everyone, Louis ends up surviving, but this brush with death makes Anne even more for makes Anne even more firm in her desire to separate Louis away from Marie Mancini and to have him marry an actually appropriate woman. And she succeeds. By August 1659, the relationship between the two is over. And in June 1660, Louis XIV gets married. His wife is Anne's niece and his cousin, Marie Therese of Spain. Remember, Louis and Marie-Therese are double first cousins because all of their parents are siblings, which definitely isn't sketchy at all. Anne had been working on 
organizing the marriage since 1657, and by November 1659, the marriage treaty's in place. It's a huge coup for Anne because it does help reunify Spain and France and gives France some nice juicy new territory, so everyone is nice and happy. Anne particularly loves the marriage. It goes great from a political perspective, and Marie Therese is the dream daughter-in-law for her. On top of this, Marie Therese gives birth to a son almost immediately after the wedding. Okay, fine, within an appropriate nine months after the wedding, which makes it all even better. Sadly for Anne, in March 1661, her beloved Mazarin dies, and Louis XIV announces that he's going to rule all on his own. Thank you very much. Yes, he will have advisors and ministers helping him out along the way, giving him advice, but he truly will be an absolute monarch like France hasn't seen before. After 1661, Anne did take a step back from politics, but she still will be decently involved at the at court. After all, she is the king's mother. She moved to a church that she had helped build, Val de Grasse. And from here on out, Anne's life is pretty good. The only slight cloud in it was the fact that Louis kept flirting with his cousin and brother's wife, Henriette Anne, which is just awkward from a family perspective. Can you imagine the holiday dinners? And then Louis got his first official mistress, Louise de la Valliere. Anne wasn't too upset about Louis having a mistress because all kings got mistresses at some point, and Louis was married and did have a legitimate heir. She was more concerned about the mistress from a religious perspective because she felt like it would send Louis to hell because he was committing adultery, which was morally wrong, so it's causing her a lot of emotional conflict. But beyond that, life for Anne is good. She's the queen's mother. She has a lot of sway at court. People care about her opinion, even though she's not the center of political power anymore. However, by 1665, Anne started to suffer from bad health. She told her doctors she was feeling some pain in her limbs. By May 1665, she almost certainly had breast cancer, which was not curable back then. The closest doctors had to a treatment was bleeding and using lime to cut away diseased tissue, which was not a treatment in the least. I would say that probably was just making things worse. By Christmas 1665, Anne was clearly dying. She's super swollen. She's in really bad pain. And as she's getting sicker and sicker, Foreign policy issues had begun again in France. Her brother, Philip IV of Spain, had died, and his only son, Charles II, was extremely not healthy. Charles II is beloved by AP Euro students across the planet for being the one with like the really strange face shape because he was so inbred. Theoretically, Louis's wife, Marie Therese, in of Spain was possibly still in line for succession because her dowry had never fully been 
played off, but no one's really sure if that counted or not. So the question of Spanish succession was left unresolved and definitely wouldn't be a problem that would start a war. A few months, a few weeks after Christmas 1665, on January 20th, 1660, Anne of Austria died in Paris of breast cancer. She was 65 years old. Her last words were her asking for a crucifix. Anne of Austria is buried in the chapel of Saint-Denis in Paris. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's quickly recap the life of Anne of Austria. Anne of Austria was born in 1601 in Spain. Despite her name, she never actually lived in Austria, but she was the daughter of Margaret of Austria and Philip III of Spain. She was raised extremely religious by her parents, but beyond a religious education, her education was fairly limited. Most of the knowledge she got, she got from watching drama at the Spanish court. When she was 10 years old, she got engaged to King Louis XIII of France, who was the same age as her. The two ended up getting married in 1615 when Anne was 14 years old. From the outset, the marriage between the two wasn't great. Louis was fairly emotionally stunted and physically was not interested in his new bride, even though Anne had a reputation for being beautiful. To make matters worse, Anne also had a not-so-great relationship with her mother-in-law, which we all know is a great way to utterly fail at being a queen. Two years after the marriage, Louis led a coup against his mother and began ruling as king in his own right, but that didn't really improve Anne's status at the French court. The early years of Anne's marriage to Louis were marked by a series of pregnancies that ended in miscarriages, which convinced everyone that Anne was utterly incapable of having a son, which meant that she was a complete failure as a queen. Poor Anne. And then Louis got a new main advisor, Cardinal de Richelieu, who technically had started out as being in Anne's household, but was convinced that Anne needed to be sidelined from power. So Anne and the Cardinal did not get along very well. While all this was going on, for various reasons, Anne had the misfortune of meeting the Duke of Buckingham, a close friend of the King of England. The Duke of Buckingham was aggressively into Anne, while Anne did not return his affections, but because the Duke of Buckingham had no sense of propriety, it started a bit of a scandal, and Anne has unfortunately gone down in history as being a bit of a slut, even though she almost certainly wasn't. The 1630s happened, and they weren't great for Anne either. She and Marie de Medici bonded once briefly by trying to oust Richelieu, that failed, and Anne's influence at court continued to diminish. Then France and Spain declared war against each other, and Anne got caught up in the middle because her husband was the king of France, and her beloved father was the king of Spain, and she was caught writing letters to her dad, which made everyone in France super mad at her. However, there was a bright side to Anne's life. Because in September 1638, she finally did what she was supposed to do. She gave birth to a son named Louis after her dad. 
Finally, France had an heir, and a lot of the pressure was off of Anne. Yay, Anne. She just had to ignore the pesky rumors that Louis wasn't actually her husband's son, which almost certainly were false. A few years after giving birth to her son, in 1643, Louis XIII died, which meant that, one, Anne no longer had to deal with her kind of irritating husband, and two, her beloved son was now King of France. After a little bit of behind-the-scenes maneuvering, Anne became Louis's sole regent, which meant that she got to be in charge of the day-to-day running of the country. Because she was just a woman and couldn't be expected to do all of that alone, she formed an alliance with an Italian cardinal, Giulio Mazarin, who was her main advisor during the regency. The two got along so well that rumors spread that they were having an affair, which is almost certainly false because Mazarin was extremely pious, unlike a lot of other cardinals in the 1600s. While Anne did just want to focus on raising her sons to be the best royals ever, current events have a way of getting in the middle of these things. Due to the ongoing war with Spain, taxes in France were getting higher and higher, and the government was getting pretty dang unpopular. The French nobles wanted to have more of a say, Anne did not, tensions built, which ended up leading to a revolt by the nobles, known as the Fronde. Anne and the children had to flee from Paris, and Louis himself almost got held hostage, while Mazarin had to flee France entirely. However, by 1652, Mazarin and Anne managed to play the nobles off of each other, and things in Paris started to cool down. In 1654, Louis officially became king of France in his own right. He no longer needed his mother or Mazarin's help. He was in charge. And now that he was in charge, Louis was going to begin making decisions, including which women he was going to fall in love with. And as it turned out, Louis did not exactly have suitable taste in women because the first woman he fell in love with was one of Mazarin's nieces, which made Anne extremely angry. She did eventually end this relationship and convinced Louis to marry his cousin, Marie Therese of Spain, which was great from a political perspective because France and Spain were able to end their war and become allies again, but less great from a genetic perspective because Marie Therese and Louis shared the same set of grandparents, by which I mean Louis's parents and Marie Therese's parents were all siblings, so it was all extremely messy from a genetic point of view. However, Anne was thrilled, she loved her daughter-in-law, and very quickly, Louis and Marie Therese had children, so the inheritance was all nicely sealed up. In 1661, Mazarin died, Louis XIV was officially ruling on his own, and Anne took a step back from politics. For the next few years of her life were fairly calm, she lived in a convent, things were going great, until 1665, when she started to suffer from ill health, which almost certainly was breast cancer. She ended up dying of breast cancer on January 20th, 1666, at the age of 65. 
So, that is Anne of Austria. While she's mostly just known as this flirty, affair-having, fictional character from The Three Musketeers, the reality of her life is a lot different. She was very involved in court intrigue, and not just of the romantic nature. She was getting down and dirty in the politics of 17th century France, and 17th century France had a lot of political drama, and I think seeing that in her life certainly made me respect her more. She had a shitty husband, and she made the most of it, which is kind of a trend for a lot of early modern queens. For most of my research for this episode came from Antonia Fraser's book, Love in Louis XIV, The Women in the Life of the Sun King, Francois de Motteville's memoirs of Marie of Anne of Austria in the court of Louis XIV, and Ruth Kleinman's book, Anne of Austria, Queen of France. For a full list of sources and relevant images, you can visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides.com. Next time, I'll be doing an episode on Maria Teresa of Spain, Louis's wife whose life involved a lot of insults. As always, if you want to financially help out the podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides to get access to a lot of bonuses, including tangent casts. The next tangent cast, which will be coming out at the same time as this episode, is going to be me talking about the Three Musketeers and what's accurate and what's not in it. I understand right now, with what's going on with COVID, joining the Patreon and giving a monthly donation might be not a financial option for some people, and I totally understand that, but if that is something you can do, I totally appreciate it and it means the world to me. As always, if you want to chat on social media, there's the Twitter at SadGirlStudyPod and the Instagram at SadGirlStudy. The best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're on Stitcher, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, and let me know how I'm doing. Rate or review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks!